The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you this week from Austin, Texas, as I'm traveling and doing some vacationing. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. It was originally inspired by the meaning and work research I've done over the last 15 years and now complements the work I do at Insignium, a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a moment, but first a big thank you to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation and are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Thank you, Jobbing.com. Appreciate you. Last week, we enjoyed a special visit for what has become the annual holiday program for me. None other than Santa Claus, that is Santa Ronnie, to be exact, joined us to celebrate and give thanks during the holiday season. We talked about how he enjoys visiting sick children in hospitals during the holidays and all he's learned about life interacting with children. And since he joined me from my home office studio, we also broadcast the show via Facebook Live and interacted with some listeners that way. It was really fun. It was a nice way to celebrate the holidays. For this week's conversation, with me is John Sumser, who is the Principal Analyst at HR Examiner, a human resource technology industry analyst firm and publishing house covering the range of human resource technology and helping vendors and practitioners make sense of human resource technology. He is also the CEO of Two Color Hat and is on the board of advisors of People Matter, Rollpoint, and Work4. He joins us today from someplace in California in Sonoma, Sonoma County, which I'll let you just give me the name in just a second here, John. It's great to have you with me. Welcome to Working on Purpose. Hi, Elise. How are you? I'm doing great. And can we just tell our listeners that this is our second conversation today? Oh, the, you know, this is, this is um, um, sort of phone tag for radio shows. Elise was on the HR Examiner radio show, which you can find on Blog Talk Radio or on the hrexaminer.com website this morning. And so, and so we're trading roles today. It's really fun to be on both sides, I have to say. I enjoyed my conversation with you this morning, John. You were a great way to start my day. So now I'm looking forward to sharing you with my listeners. And so to get us kicked off, will you just introduce yourself and Tell us what you're up to these days. Sure. My name is John Sumser, and I run a small company called Two Color Hat. Two Color Hat, I think maybe I'll get around to telling you the story about its name, but Two Color Hat is a firm that specializes in understanding paradox as it applies in work and in life. And Two Color Hat is the owner of 
the HR Examiner, which is an industry analysis company focused on HR and HR technology. So we look at the things that make HR successful. I live in beautiful Sebastopol, California. Sebastopol is one of the few Russian settlements in the United States. It was, it was settled early on by the Russians as they built the fur trade in Northern California. There is about 30 miles from my house a Russian fort called Fort Ross. And the Russians sailed onto the California coast about the time that the Spanish were moving their missions up north and then captured all of the living and breathing animals for the fur trade in Northern California. And so we have a town named Sebastopol and it's named after a small place in Russia. Mm, fascinating history and that you know it and can tell us that so succinctly is lovely. Well, you know what? I, I love where I live. I live in a, in a kind of a paradise that I don't think most people get to. I live in the mountains of the Redwood Forest on the coastal shores of the Pacific Ocean in Sonoma County near the Russian River. And so we see all sorts of things that you would never imagine possible just an hour or so north of San Francisco. It's, it's a little bit of heaven with trees that are magnificent and large enough to have observable personalities and a river full of salmon and a coast that is rocky and inhospitable, largely because the Great White Shark Preserve stretches from the Russian River to the Oregon border. You know, what I also appreciate what you just said there, John, and it really kind of supports the, the whole mission of the show around meaning and work and, and being purposely connected to your life and how you spend your time, is that I know that you have purposely architected that life for yourself. You have put yourself in, a, in an environment that, that, that you love and that fuels you. And I think that's a wonderful way to, to really kick off the show to talk about who you are and what matters to you and what you're, what you're up to. Well, I'll tell you something funny about me that I think may be different from most of the people that you talk to. And the way that most people see themselves is, as I really don't have roots, I'm 62 years old, and I have never lived in the same place for longer than five years. Mm. And I uh, once thought of that as a tremendous handicap. I was a, a, a military child, and we moved... Geez, I think I went to 10 schools before I got out of high school. And we moved and moved and moved and moved, and I hated every bit of it. But what I learned is that I have a knack as the result of that for making the transition between cultures in ways that lots of people don't. And I've, I've come to love getting in and out of cultures. And in my work, I've gotten in and out of maybe 2,500 different companies. And so what I've learned over the course of my rootless career is what makes companies tick and, and can tell you an awful lot about a company by just standing in its reception area. I completely understand that. I had no idea, though. The number 2,500 is, is astounding, John. Astounding. Well, you know, you know, what's interesting is that in my work, I talk to probably 
450 or 500 companies a year. And an example of how that goes is for a week in October each year, I do briefings with 50 companies over the course of four days and spend an hour with each one of them learning about what the companies do and what their organizational structures like, what their products are like, what their markets are like. And, And over time, this adds up to an enormous body of raw data about what makes a company tick. Now, the the hour-long briefings, I don't count those as being intimately inside of a company, but I, but I do four or 500 of those a year and then have deeper interactions with companies. And, you know, I've been at this a very long time, so getting up to 2,500 companies isn't, isn't that hard if you stick with it for a while. I get that. And, and now, is that what you meant when you said, you told me that at one point that you feel that you're just lucky and that you get to live in being curious? Is that what you mean? Well, so, so I never wanted to build a company. And one of the things that seems to be hot in our culture these days is the idea that what one should do with one's time is get rich. And, you know, I never figured out the money thing. I never figured out how to love money so much that it got in the way of me being curious. I just just was sort of bad at that. And, And as a result, I've had an awful lot of experiments. I don't know at all how... I would scale my work, and by scaling, I mean the sort of Silicon Valley model of business success, which is that you you get a lot of people to bet on your half-finished product and eventually sell them slightly better versions of the product till you've sold a whole lot of them and everybody's rich. Uh, I, I don't know how to do that with the kind of work that I do, which is largely helping people understand what they do and and getting in a position to tell each uh, other people clearly what that is. Instead, I've tried to come at the work from a bunch of different ways. So I learned how to write, and and I, uh, writing is a big part of the work. And then I've, I've taken different models from sort of roaming around the countryside with a, I think you might have been part of the recruiting roadshow some years back where we, we went to 30 individual cities and tried to build networks in those 30 individual cities. And I've built little endeavors in survey businesses and marketing businesses, but mostly my question has always been, how do you get companies to do what they're good at doing? And what's the answer? Can you give us like some sneak peeks or some, some points? Well, I'll tell you. One of the things I learned about consulting is that most consultants show up at a company and try to figure out what's wrong. Consultants are problem solvers, and so so uniformly, consultants show up in your office, and if you just let them sit there for a while, they'll come up with a list of the things that are broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 great fun; you can do that. But it's also 
possible to go to an organization and begin with the premise that it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. That that there's no such thing as a broken organization. There are just lots of organizations doing what they're supposed to do, and the people in charge are not happy that the organization is doing what it's supposed to do. And so there's this disconnect between the expectations of leadership and what the organization is doing. What's broken isn't the organization, the organization's doing what it does. That's what all systems do. All systems work, all systems do what they're supposed to do. And when leaders want it to go left and it goes right, they often say it's broken. What tends to be broken is the expectation that the organization will do what you want it to do just because you want it to do that. That is such a fresh perspective, John. I have to say, I don't know that I've heard anybody give it to me like that before. That really is fresh and lovely to hear. You're right. And I'm a consultant, as you know. I don't know that we go in looking for what's wrong either, per se, but I don't think about looking at things from what's actually right from the get-go, personally. Yeah, or just just start with the assumption that it's exactly right. Not what's not find the things to dwell on that are working right, but... But go in, look at the organization and say, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to make a change, then you're changing something that's working to do something that you think will work better. And that allows you to reframe what what is traditionally understood as resistance to change. Mm-hmm. Right. If if the thing is doing what it's supposed to do, then the people who are, quote, resisting change are really just saying, we're doing what we're supposed to do, and we're not sure that what you want us to do continues to take us in that direction. So, John, are you consulting with companies these days and working from, getting to work from the scrimmage with organizations? Not that I'm going to ask you for any specific names, but are you doing some of this work today? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 what I love to do. Now, now I find that it's easier to do this kind of work if you start with the product rather than with the organization. Okay. So, 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 so I, I'm not really a great fan of the traditional HR view that you can do something with sort of the psychology of the organization or the gestalt of the organization that results in transformation. But I do think that that if you can get the company to focus clearly on the intersection of its product and its market, that other things kind of fall into place. It's pretty amazing that companies whose product is successful typically don't have big organizational problems. And companies whose product is not quite so successful typically have great product, great organizational problems. And so, so I've taken to believing that it is the intersection between the work of the company and its market that is where health in an organization comes from. How lovely and crisp, John. And that is really quite thought-provoking to think about what you just said about comparing the health of, a, of an organization with regard to, I forget how you said that, it's product um, adoption in the marketplace or success in the marketplace. How did you say that? 
it's the, the, the fit. I would call it the fit of the product to the marketplace. I don't, right. think that, I don't think that engagement consultants get phone calls from companies who have great product market fit. I don't think I, th- I think I think engagement is blamed for bad product market fit, and so I find that a lot of engagement consulting is fixing a problem. That's what I said at the beginning. They're fixing a problem of of the company doing what it's supposed to do, and the reality is a highly profitable company with a product that works doesn't have engagement problems. Mm, I like that. That makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I have done a lot, a fair amount of engagement work, as you know, in my past. Today, of course, we focus more on breakthrough performance and organizational transformation kind of work. But so, what I think is interesting is what we're always looking for is where where is there an opportunity for disruption in the marketplace? Where can we find? Where can we look for and open our eyes to? places to serve new new markets, new customers that we couldn't find before, which I find very fascinating. Oh, that's great. That's great. Disruption is is a critical challenge for all organizations today. The the pace of technology has accelerated to the point that it's really really challenging to stay on top of it. And with that accelerated technology comes the empowerment of people who you never would have thought of as competitors before. And it also makes it possible for you to compete in ways that you never thought of before. But disrupting yourself, which is, would be the, the thing that I think that you're talking about, disrupting yourself is an extremely difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly also referring to disrupting, seeing in terms of technology, markets, opportunities, all those things as well. And yeah, it is. And we, the kind of work that we get to do is, is really on a very, very internal focused basis to be able to help executives really reveal their own mindsets, their frameworks of how they consider opportunities and challenges in the marketplace. Um, unhook from any that really aren't serving them well. And then to... Uh, create new ways forward for them to consider what what might lie ahead and then actually implement that. Um, so it's it's I love that because for me it really is very much that intersection of people and business. Well, that's people are business, right? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. The tw- it's the twenty first century, and you know, in the uh, up to up to the mid nineteenth century. People were business, but what they did is dug holes in the ground and farmed stuff. And then people were business in that they were, I'm going to say that that slavery may just be ending. The, The idea of an industrial worker sort of tied to a machine doing the same rhythmic dance over and over and over again to convert some raw material into some sort of widget, we spent 100, 125 years doing that. And today, what we're doing is increasingly knowledge-based services that are free from capital investment. One One of the very interesting things about the economy is interest rates have stayed low largely because there's no demand for capital. 
largely because most of the businesses that make sense in the wealthier part of the planet uh, are businesses that don't have capital requirements. They have human requirements. And the work that you're doing, which is teaching people how to transform themselves while they're in process of doing other things is at the heart of value creation in the 21st century. We think so too. And hold that thought, John. What a great way to go into our first break. What a beautiful way to crisp that. I love that. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with John Sumser, who is a principal analyst at HR Examiner. And this is a human resource technology industry analyst firm and publishing house covering the range of human resource technology and helping vendors and practitioners make sense of human resource technology. We've been talking a bit about his background and his obvious curiosity. After the break, we'll continue the dialogue. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is John Sumser, who is the principal analyst at HR Examiner, which is a human resource technology industry analyst firm and publishing house covering the range of human resource technology and helping vendors and practitioners make sense of human resource technology. He is also the CEO of Two Color Hat and is on the board of various organizations that he helps serve, like People Matter, Role Point, and Work For. He joins us today from an area in Sonoma, California. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Before the break, John, we were talking a bit about how you're, you were narrating some of the history where we've gotten to a place where we really are knowledge workers. And I would love for you t- to share with us your perspective, what you've learned. I know one of the things you've investigated over time is mach- machine learning um, and certainly artificial intelligence. Tell us what you know about that and your perspective about what does that mean for the world of work and how people engage with it. Well, I, I don't know. Have you heard this nonsense about everybody's going to get automated out of their job and the robots are taking over? <laughs> I have heard that a time or two, yes. It's, it's a great, scary story. It's, it's the boogeyman of the 21st century. 
And what, I, what I've learned, I've, I've spent a lot of time digging deeply into what's possible with artificial intelligence and machine learning. What I've learned is that we're capable of producing intelligences that are focused artifacts that behave and think and process like four-year-olds. And to the extent that your job could be done by a four-year-old, watch out, uh, because you, you're kind of under the gun. But to the extent that you have an adult occupation, it's going to be a very, very long time before machines are capable of other than parlor tricks. So I've got an Alexa sitting on my desktop, and Alexa, hey, Alexa, how you doing? Oh, she's sulking today. She's not going to talk to me today. But but Alexa can find records for me, and Alexa can mine other people's taste in music and play wonderful things for me. It can't really be very helpful with my small child whose feelings are hurt or how to get along with the next door neighbor or what I'd really like is for Alexa to be able to do the marketing for my company, which is a challenging thing. And she won't do that. Right. So, so what I'm finding with this, with this bunch of artificial intelligence stuff is as long as what I need is for the lights to be turned on and off or for my car to start up, it's great. It's fantastic. And if I needed to solve an actual problem, it's not going to be there for a very, very long time. One of the, the stats that I, that I like is it's, it's now possible to model the human brain in all of its wondrous glory with all of the neurons in a single model. And you can run that model of the human brain using all of Amazon's computing capacity, every single bit of it. And if you give it 60 minutes, it'll execute one second's worth of brain processing. The estimate for a fully realized brain simulator that runs at speed is about 75 years out. And that's one brain. What I'm interested in is how the ecosystem of brains that make up organizations gets modeled. And, and my guess is that we're 150 years away from having an interesting look at that. So my take is that there's not really a lot of reason to be concerned about job loss due to automation. There'll be some prods towards effectiveness and efficiency, but we, but we won't find machines doing our work anytime soon. I uh, certainly, of course, we're all happy to hear that. And I do absolutely tend to, <laughs> to, to uh, feel the same way. And I'm not nearly as informed on the matter as you are, John. And your perspective about, you know, certainly automating some of these tasks like lights on and off. Yes, any day, please do that for me. One of the things that I used to think about way before we got into, maybe we're talking maybe 10 years ago when we thought about automation was there was still that place for curiosity and inquisition that, or just curiosity and, and certainly creativity that I would be curious about how you think, could a machine ever approximate? 
I don't even know how you get started with that. I, I, I do know that human beings are always nervous when machines get into the game. So, so I don't know if you, if you followed the history of the industrial era. The industrial era began in the cotton mills of Great Britain in the 1820s. And the people who industrialized the cotton mills were all utopian idealists. And what they were trying to do was build a world in which work could get done and that people would have leisure time, they'd be freed from the drudgery of the fields and could come into these great places where they worked out of the weather with their children and could indulge in pursuits of curiosity. What it takes, I think, for curiosity to happen is a great deal of boredom. Mm. But you have to have you have to have the opportunity to get curious. You have to have the resources to get curious. It takes it takes spare time. And so what I think we're gonna see is a flowering of curiosity over the next say 50 years, as some of the drudgery comes out of the work and people will discover amazing things. And, you know, in, in 1820, when the Luddites were reacting to the idealists who built the first factories, they were terrified that there wouldn't be any more work, that the machines would do all the work. That's what the Luddites were scared of and mad of and rioting about. And what happened instead is we invented acres and acres and acres of things to do that created value that you could get paid for as the result of the very thing that looked like it was going to destroy work. And I think we're probably on the verges of that again. Oh, you know what that, what I hear in that, John, is just endless possibility. And I didn't know that you would say something like that, but of course, knowing you as I think I do or somewhat do, I'm not surprised. But what I hear from you is that kind of, Piggybacking off what we said before the break was this notion of, you know, this when we go into looking for disruption, looking for places that didn't exist, and we have no idea what's beyond that. And yet, I do think that you're right that the possibility that what those what that could usher in for us is is, I hope for most of us is more exciting than it is scary. I would hope, but I know for a lot of people it isn't because the it's the unknown, it's change. Now, change is a, is a fairly common thing. I was wondering if you've noticed in your work that when you put pressure on people to find alternatives, they can't. Have you noticed that? That, that the yeah. very thing that causes hardening of the assumption set is the pressure to find new assumptions. Mm, say more about that, John. You seem to have a very specific focus on this. Say more about what you mean. Well, I've, I've just noticed that, that it's very hard to discover alternatives when you are on a deadline to discover alternatives. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. Yeah, well, so in the kind of work that we've gotten to do, John, and, and you know that I've only been with the firm for about seven months now, so I, and they've been around for 31 years. Um, but some of the work that we've done over the years, especially let's say like pharmaceutical com- companies, is to help them either get back on track to to release a drug in a timeline in which they promised, or to to accelerate that timeline. And so, 
when you think about what does that take, and you mentioned before, just you know, imagine large organizations with lots of resources, lots of minds, but still with some maybe some thoughts about they're trying to go after the impossible. This can't actually be done. Why are we actually beating our heads against the wall? And we're supposed to do it within whatever time period, six months, 12 months, whatever it is. Um, and so for, for us, the, our magic sauce has really been able to really help liberate the, the thinking of, of people to be able to consider and be open to entirely new ways of looking at an opportunity at a problem um, and look beyond what is staring them in the face currently, even if there is a timeline, because oftentimes there is. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, I think that the part of the, what helps that is maybe suspending the focus that there's a timeline in order to get to that kind of a result. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to say this badly. I've worked in both sorts of environments, and, and I, love, I love the environment where breaking the state of the art is normal. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are great technical environments. But I've also, in recent years, learned to suspend deadlines as a way of achieving deadlines. And, and by that, I mean... It's possible to just relax right when the pressure is the highest. And learning how to relax when the pressure is the highest is that that's when I say releasing the deadline in the middle of the deadline, that's what I'm trying to get at is it's possible to let the pressure go and in letting the pressure go, see the next thing. Uh, you know what's so yummy about that, John? What that reminds me of is when I was going through my divorce, a lot of people said to me, you know, what I really want to encourage you to do is to lean into the pain, lean into your you know, what you need to do to process things and, and move on, not, not, not retract from it, not try to get away from it, but lean into it. Um, somehow I feel like there's a connect with what you just said there. Do you see it at all? Well, well, so so you know when I when I think about leaning into something, I think about sailing, okay. and there's a there's a place in a sailboat where you are at the maximum intersection of the wind and the direction that you're going, and when you find that place, it gets very still. Mm. So, so there's 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 a place where leaning into it that that's great, but if you lean too hard, you fall over. Mm-hmm. Right. So you don't want to you don't want to lean so hard that you fall on your face. You want to lean in to the place where you have maximum effectiveness, and I think that place feels quiet. Mm-hmm. I get that, John. I don't, I, I don't think it feels like. You're pushing so hard that that the that the consequence comes from your pushing. I believe that it's you push to the point that you're in the flow. Mm-hmm. No, I totally get that, and that's what it felt like for me in some of those instances. I felt like I was sort of yielding myself to, giving myself to. And you're right. When I think back on it, and just if I could concentrate for just a second, I did feel that place of just stillness. Yeah, so so it's interesting. So then the question is, right? If that works under pressure, under deadline, you you lean in and you find the place of stillness that gets you the optimal result. Then how do you accomplish that 
in a way that's not so hard on your adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. because leaning in that whole that whole it's 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 kind of strange that Sheryl Sandberg is behind that because it's such a male analogy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're the masters of the universe here, and we're going to do this by being the masters of the universe, and we're going to push. Um, what if there's a way of sitting still? That means you don't have to go through all of that leaning in nonsense, and that you can find the thing by just relaxing at first rather than having to push to the point that you relax. That's a, that's a kind of question that I've been looking at. Mm-hmm. I, of course, you know, I've always been fascinated with that way that your mind works, always, and I've enjoyed conversations with you before along these lines. Um, it, it sort of also reminds me, John, it, that it just sort of feels like if you can center yourself in a place that lets you, as you say, do what you're already doing well, um, maybe what you're also doing then is because of that kind of energy, you're attracting possibilities or people to you. Yes? No? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, and, and, and I get really itchy when I hear things like center yourself. Because, <laughs> you. You, you know, I, in my view, in my view, people are at birth or just before birth set to be either people who feel nurtured by the world or people who feel anxious all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And... and and, and I think that's, that's actually a pretty factual assessment. And I happen to be the kind of person who feels anxious all the time. And so, so if, you tell me that what, if you tell me that what I need to do is center myself, I'll, I'll spin out on whether or not I've centered myself exactly on the center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's very little that's more of a waste of time than being anxious about centering yourself. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> it's just that's that's a great recipe for a nervous breakdown. I don't think they have nervous breakdowns anymore, but it's still a great recipe for one. And and instead, um, I think there's a a kind of a be loose, even if it's not very centered. Right, mm-hmm. be loose, even if it's flying apart. Just let it go. And in letting it go, interesting things happen. Really, really interesting things happen. We're in such a, a deadline-driven, outcome-driven world yes. that we lose sight of what happens if we allow the world to teach us instead of insisting that the world bend to our will. And it seems to me that there is a faster way. This is maybe it's this is no more than a retelling of the tortoise and the hare. That there's a faster way to conclusions that comes from relaxing and enjoying and going slow. What do you think? I like it, and um, I really like it, John. And I do think there's absolutely something there, and I think I think. I think maybe some of the smarter companies out there are, are doing more of that, or at least trying to architect environments that encourage that. Um, not I got Silicon that. Valley, they're not. Maybe maybe somewhere else. Maybe in the in the great world where what's the TV show Ducks Unlimited? 
Maybe in the world where they watch that stuff, they're doing it, but they're not doing it on the coast that I've seen. Ah, uh, well, um, I it seems like there's some examples. I mean, I don't know if you could put uh, like great huge organizations like Google in there at all, but at least the idea. I think the one of the organizations that that devote twenty percent of their employees' time to letting them work on what they want to work on. And, and do I have that right? Is that the right organization? Uh, you know, I don't think anybody does that anymore. I think that was an experiment. Google certainly doesn't do that anymore. Um, I, I'm sure that I'm sure there are organizations that are echoing that, but they didn't get productive results out of it. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, that's a good place for us to bookmark anyway here, John. We're time for a break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with John Sumser, who is the principal analyst at HR Examiner, which is a human resource technology industry analyst firm and publishing house, covering the range of human resource technology and helping vendors and practitioners make sense of human resource technology. We have been having a lovely philosophical conversation about how people could perhaps think differently and respond to opportunities differently. After the break, we'll carry on with with another set of circumstances to examine. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. John Sumser, who is a principal analyst at HR Examiner, which is a human resource technology industry analyst firm and publishing house. We have been talking a good bit about his perspective about the world of work and and how people connect with it. For this last segment, we want to focus our our conversation on his perspective on, on, on what's happening in the world of enterprise software and really how business processes have been automated. So John, you and I were talking on the break a little bit about that. So tell us more about your perspective on this topic. Well, I learned to code in the late 1970s. And when I learned to code, you used punch cards and you fed the punch cards to a machine. The machine went through each of the lines of instruction and you got a printout that told you whether or not it worked or didn't work. 
and and software has been built along those basic lines ever since and it's a great way to tackle problems that are in predictable processes what happened in enterprise software and this is this is the story of oracle and ibm and sap and now workday uh, along with hundreds of other companies what happened is that those large-scale work process automation endeavors have automated everything that could be automated. It's, it's really quite funny that, that, you know, we started the beginning of this conversation on the idea that automation might somehow eliminate lots of people from work. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but... There doesn't seem to be any net elimination of people after 35 years of work process automation. Right. What's happened is we've run out of things to automate. And that's, that's a fascinating dilemma for the big software companies. And, and so, so you might have noticed that they're getting more and more into crazy stuff like uh, – inserting marketing technologies into the human resources function, which it turns out is a very smart idea, but it's fringe. It's really fringe to think that the next step in evolution is that we're all going to become marketers. What I think is more likely is that now that we're out of things to automate, the very nature of work is going to go through some pretty interesting changes. Again, in order to automate the entire body of work, which we've done, you had to behave as if all of the organic processes in an organization were not organic, but were machine-like. And so you go through step one, then you go through step two, then you go through step three, then you go through step four, which is how machines work, but it isn't how organic things work. What I believe we're starting to see is that organic methods for getting things done are starting to become achievable with software. And so the thing I like to point out here is Workday's new learning module. Workday's new learning module takes the the, the current premise in learning and development software is that learning happens someplace other than on the job and development happens someplace other than on the job. So you have to go to the learning management system to get the learning stuff. And when you get done with the learning stuff, you come back to the job. And for as long as I can remember, people have complained about the fact that learning from the learning and development department or the old training department never seemed to be actually relevant on the job. That there was this predictable loss from the, the moment of transformation in the classroom or in the, in the group setting to the point that you get back to the job and all of the motivation from the learning experience evaporated by the time you've been back in the job for a couple of weeks. With Workday's new tool set, what they've done is made it possible to treat every single activity in the workplace as a learning experience. 
And so, so they can associate with it. it so you ima- imagine that we've got this long workflow process that's been thoroughly automated in isolation, and it does, oh, let's say, recruiting. And so you go find people, you screen people, you evaluate people, you shortlist people, you interview people, you send them around interview committees, you make judgments, you decide who's going to stay, you hire them, and then you go recruit some more people, right? That's, that's a, a, an example of a workflow. Yes. If at every stop in that logic train that I just laid out, there was learning material available that made you better, smarter, faster, more adept, able to shed your assumptions about the work that you're doing, the idea is that the process would become sort of self-directing and self-healing and self-organizing rather than, than following that dreary, repetitive, 15-step exercise, right? It's like, it's like sentencing people to be Sisyphus to put them to work in a recruiting department or a succession planning or payroll or whatever the, whatever the organizational function is. Once you get, equip somebody with a workflow, you have bound them to push the rock up the hill till it rolls down the other side. And what I'm seeing is a reprieve from that prison, I'm seeing tools emerge that allow you to learn on the fly in the middle of executing the work in ways that allow you to modify the process while you're in the process of going through it. And I'm really excited about that. It's in its infancy. It's in its infancy, but I can't imagine, for instance, about, I, I know a lot about recruiting, and so and so I can't imagine why with this new mindset, you wouldn't start to treat recruiting as a process of trying to get the new hire to be to productivity as quickly as possible as the fundamental object of recruiting rather than filling a seat. Mm-hmm. And I think that you can start to reimagine all sorts of things about the way we get things done if we have a bigger picture of the end state that we're trying to achieve and the way that you can integrate learning into the process over time. So as someone who spent at least the last 10 years of my life really focused on learning and development for myself and for and helping inspire that in others, of course, I wonder, can you give us an example of what, what would be some of these learning activities that might go along in a process like that? Well, let's say one of the things that I'm sure of is that <clears throat> Software adoption is really a learning and development problem. It's not really a software adoption problem at all. Okay, I so, agree. Sorry? I completely agree. So, so for instance, uh, if we, you and I were working in the same company, uh, doing different jobs, but working with the same software, it's liable to be the case that the people on the software project have an adoption objective that would be the same for both of us. But if I'm if I only log on to the system every quarter and you log on to it every day, then what should be expected out of us is, is pretty different. 
So the kind of system that is starting to drop into place is if I log on to the system every quarter, the system meets me at the level of my needs, and it remembers that I don't know how to do anything and that over the, over the intervening quarter, I've forgotten everything that I've been told. So my opening screen has lots of resources to remind me how to use the system. Okay. Your opening screen, if you use it every day, does not have lots of resources to help you use it. Instead, it has resources that help you get better based on your demonstrated levels of proficiency. Right, so the so the software behaves as if it were aware of the difference between our skills at using it, meets us at the level of our needs, and adoption disappears as a problem. Instead, there's the how do we get you to the next level of uh, proficiency sort of question, which is a training question. How's that? Mm-hmm. I like it, John. I really like it. That's interesting. I didn't know that, that Workday was working on something like this at all. I think that's quite interesting. One of the many reasons I wanted to have you on the show, because I think you have a very unique, one, mindset and an approach to thinking about the world. But two, I know the work that you've been doing is really heavily focused on that world of technology that, that I don't really spend a lot of time on. And I knew that I knew you'd be able to help us bridge our understanding of how companies are using technology today, what's the promise of tomorrow, uh, I, I'm I'm intrigued. So I think I think there's a new universe that's emerging right where the old one used to exist, and what's really challenging is finding the way to see it and finding the way to experience it. It's it, we're right at we're right at a transition point, and all of this junk about automation going to rob us of our employment misses the fact that what what we're about to have is a world where we are catered to by little intelligences that have the capacity of four-year-olds in order to help us work even better and more effectively. Well, right? and, I- so, and so I'm excited about what's coming. I'm so excited about what's coming. Well, and I am too, and right, and both of us are in sort of unique circumstances in that we each get to, in our respective ways, help people maybe embrace that perspective or help them um, navigate that way forward. Yeah, I love to. I love doing that. I, I, I think one of the, one of the things you know we talked a little bit earlier about organizations doing what they're supposed to do when you encounter them. And they're not being such a thing as a broken organization, just an organization that does what it's supposed to do. And maybe the purpose is skewed. But the, but the machine itself is generally optimally exercising its objective. Helping the people who operate those organizations understand what their organization is actually doing that's been my calling for as long as I can remember now. And what's interesting about that is that that can be framed as marketing. It can be framed as product development. It can be framed as organizational development. Generally, and this is my problem as a business person, back to, back to the original bit of the conversation here, generally speaking, 
you can't advertise what I do. Mm-hmm. Generally John, speaking, John, you can't John, put it in a 60-word soundbite because it sounds nonsensical. Yeah. Hey, John, sorry. We only have like one minute left. I want to give you a chance just to maybe in 10 seconds to say what you want to say to our listeners before we close. Hey, I'm John <laughs> Sumser, and you can find me at hrexaminer.com. You can send me a piece of email at john at hrexaminer.com. And I'm eternally curious. And so if there's something that you're interested in that has to do with product development or how organizations work or uh, whether or not it's reasonable to think that you're supposed to scale everything that comes in front of you, send me a note. I'd love to talk to you. Great way to finish, John. Thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Elise. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, listeners. We will see you next week. Remember that work is one third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. We'll be right back.